0: I love being in spaces where we're making something together from nothing. That's the most magical creative
1: spaces that I've been in so far. It took me a while to fully realize that I actually did not like being on stage.
2: Psychologically, if you create a language that only like a certain group of people that you're working with is familiar with, that is psychologically, us making a family.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life Podcast. Sponsored by Harlequin Floors, World leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. The Theatre Art Life Podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Rob. Today we're joined by Arcadia Goss, Marina Zarita, and Molly Maxner to talk about directing
4: theatre and the devised process.
3: Acadia is a theater director hailing from all over New England. She found a home in directing through molecular genetics, a study of pregnancy and childbirth, poetry and dance, which brought her to the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Inspired by the research and study of epigenetics, Acadia is driven by stories that wrestle with inheritance. Fascinated by the discovery that we can adapt how our bodies read our DNA coding to evolve through and beyond intergenerational trauma. Katie is invested in theater that brings us closer to questioning how we can do so collectively in our communities. She most recently directed a production of Indecent as her thesis at UNCSA, directed Stupid F***ing Bird at Gatehouse Theatre Co., and created a piece that debuted at Women in Theatre Festival in 2019.
4: Marina Zarita is a theatre director born in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She likes to think of theatre as a powerful gap between translations, home for lost voices and interpretations. She moved to the US since 2016 and is currently pursuing a BFA in directing at UNCSA. Living in a foreign country fueled her passion for anthropological research and linguistics, inspiring her to develop her upcoming project, Mother Tongue, to be performed in the spring of 2022. Among her credits we have, for the time being, by Anna Moyoili, produced at the New York Winters Festival in 2020 and at Dixon Place in 2019. Marina also directed Heroes of the Fourth Turning by Will Arbery, performed at the UNCSA Keys to the Kingdom Festival in the fall of 2020, and Goosey, written and directed by her, for which she was awarded Best Play at the 2018 Strasbourg Works Festival.
3: Molly Maxner is an educator, director, choreographer, and maker of original performance work. Her movement theater work has been performed in the U.S., Taiwan, Germany, Georgia, and throughout Turkey. She has received Helen Hayes awards for her collaborative projects, Occupied Territories, and Still Life with Rocket. Molly is on faculty at UNC School of the Arts, where she is director and co-creator of the Studio for Creative Practice, a laboratory for transdisciplinary art and inquiry. Molly's current work includes education, design, and responsive and emergent pedagogies. Together, they co-directed Love and Depositions and Device, a device piece presented as an UNCSA main stage production in the spring of 2021. Well, hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hello.
4: What such an impressive accomplishments of all of you so far. <laughs> it's really cool and really, really interesting work. So, I mean, let's dig into that a little bit, you know, so why have you each got into the directing process and, and, and devising work? Maybe we'll start with Molly. So I
0: started as a dancer and choreographer and, and that is inherently a you know, choreographic process. These often start from nothing, you know, an idea and a group of people in a space. And, and so then when I shifted into directing much more fully in my late 20s early 30s I found my way to devising because it bridged that world of work that used movement and text and character and space and and I I have just I love being in spaces where we're making something together from nothing that's the most magical creative spaces that I've been in so far Yeah.
4: How about for you, Marina?
1: I got into theater, I think most people, uh, through acting uh, when I was 11. And it took me a while to fully realize that I actually did not like being on stage. (laughs) My love for theater never changed and it was always there. And once I realized that directing was an option and that's something that you can actually study and and practice as a skill uh, I was just way more interested in that than acting and by then I was already in the U.S. and applied for directing schools here there aren't any directing for theater programs in Brazil and was lucky enough to get into UNCSA and meet Molly and Akira.
4: How about you Acadia?
1: I got into theater kind of through my dad,
2: um, which was always musical theater. I was not really um into plays. I didn't know much about plays even by the time I, I auditioned and interviewed for for the directing program at, at UNC School of the Arts. In when I was 16, I I was, you know, had had been able to work on a lot of different musical processes, and was like, I'm going to be on Broadway. And then I uh, developed pre-nodules on my vocal cords, and I had to go on vocal rest for two months. And it just happened that during those two months, I was taking a class in feminist perspectives in literature and molecular genetics, and I got super invested in ovarian cancer and specific cancers that attack um As you <laughs> <do>. biology of, <laughs> of right, right? Of course. Um for, for assigned female at birth people. Um and got really, really invested in the crossovers yeah. there. Um and I've kind of always had this obsession with with pregnancy and childbirth. And so I was like, oh awesome. I'm gonna be an OBGYN. <laughs> I'm gonna like deliver babies or be a midwife or something. And I Got into the musical theater summer intensive at Carnegie Mellon. And I was like, okay, all right, maybe one more shot. We'll see. I've been doing this my whole life. I'll just, we'll see if there's anything left here. Um, and I took a directing class there. And I realized kind of through that process that the thing that I was so excited about empowering women to have, to have ownership over the stories of their own bodies, which is why I was, was already kind of steeped in, in that skill set and wanted to learn more. So that's what, what kind of got me to UNCSA. And then meeting, meeting Molly and Marina,
1: and then the journey begins. (laughs) anew. Well,
3: before we dig into, like, I don't think we've ever had this many directors with us. Well, we did have two at some point, but uh, we've been asked a couple of times, what is directing? What are the differences or different styles of directing? What a better group to ask that question to, if you could help our listeners to understand better the differences in the directing world i think molly looks ready
0: (laughs) molly's always ready molly's always ready (laughs) oh it's such an interesting question because i feel like i'm still really investigating that question you know that i mean we that's sort of how we started this project it was like wait what is directing and do we even want to call it directing anymore and what happens if we do it all together instead of it being like it traditionally has been over the past few decades. So yeah, I don't, I feel like I'm asking that question rather than necessarily being able to answer that question. So we think of other words, like what if it's not direct or what if it's midwife? Like what is it to midwife a project as opposed to direct a project? What? is that useful? Is that not useful? In what ways is it useful? But I would say some of the tenants that maybe are important to me in directing is so hard because it's also the difference between what it is to direct versus what it is to create work together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I feel like I'm most interested in leading processes where we're creating work together, which is very different than directing theater. So it's about stewardship and leadership and It feels to me like having a team of sled dogs and we're trudging through the snow and how to empower the whole team to be able to take the task at hand. So it's a lot about questions of leadership and questions of stewardship and questions of midwifery. So that answers nothing of what you asked. But as I said, (laughs) it's lots of, I just have a lot Of questions about it It feels like a lifelong practice of what what does it mean and what have we inherited about what we think directing is versus what is it what's possible and that feels like you know our adventure together the three of us started long before we had a project started with these questions what is what are the power dynamics what is directing what what could be different
4: i think that's really interesting what you've said because I think especially coming out of the pandemic when the whole world's kind of been, they flipped the bed on us a little bit and people are questioning what and how we do things. And say in the projects that I'm talking about, when do you bring the creative team together? At what point does it make sense anymore? Because we've discovered there's other ways of working, there's other ways of doing that, but also to inject, you know, what's important. And, you know, Arcadia, with your interest in, uh, midwifery and, and genetics and birth—that inquisitive mind opens up. You come from a, a perspective of general interest that then is applied into an arts context, right? And I think that as a director is is kind of the best way to approach it, rather than "I am a theatre director, give me a play," right? Like you're, if you're devising work, it has to come from this source of something that you're interested in and you're passionate about and a story you need to tell. And the roadmap for that, there isn't one really, especially if you're coming from something that hasn't been done before. I mean, it's kind of exciting and scary and crazy. And so I'm going to ask you how you guys sort of come together to devise your work and what was that process? Because I think you can take case studies, but rather than a particular definition, right?
1: And you did feel that Love and Depositions was a case study at the same time because it doesn't feel like the way you know the only way to devise work. I mean, if we want to use the word devising, but just making work. And I think for Katie and I, it being the first big making process that we were a part of, it really was. It really felt like, at least for me, learning and learning and analyzing it step by step of a of a case study of something that I knew it was very unique to that particular experience, and I was not learning how to make work period. But I was learning how to make that piece with what we had while we, when, you know, what we had available to us in a pandemic and with like 64 people who wanted to be doing that, but also it was the first time for everyone.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really key for me is, I mean, there are certain, like, if I look at the like main large projects that I've done over the past 10 years, there is some continuity to some aspects of process but it's really exciting to me to be each each process is different because of a belief that the process leads to the piece so it's not like here's the process and let's make nine pieces with the same process it's like the process leads the the process is going to lead to the piece so we have to create the process rather than use a process to make a piece, that we're creating the process that then in turn emerges into the piece.
4: How then do you find confidence in taking a particular direction or is that a kind of a workshopy collaboration group decision? You know, it's like we could go this way or this way with this, this portion of the work. When you're in such uncharted territory and you're creating this process, you, you may not know... What's right, or what's going to be received well, and that sort of thing. I think that's the most intimidating thing from a, every director faces, I guess, was you like the decisions that you make end up in a result, and and what does that what what impact then does it have, and how do you feel the confidence, especially you know, you know, as a woman, as as young women, and and, and in a world where you may not always be. You know, you haven't got the the Tony Awards and things like that. So you want to, you've got to go out and 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 prove yourself into some measure of ex, ex, an extent, right? There's got to be. I, I'm asking. I mean, do you feel that? Maybe you're in a situation where you don't feel like that. But that that there's that, probably that pressure as well to to prove that you can make good work, right?
0: I don't know. I think I I personally value other things more than that pressure. So I'm always asking. What is it that we're doing? Like what what matters? And I can say that over the and so this is a little different, you know, in terms of where I am in my life versus Marina and Akadia, you know, where you are in the beginnings of this journey. One, knowing that every process could just end in something that just doesn't really work, that we can't really control it anyway, but yet a deep trust that the piece is going to show us what it needs. And also over the years knowing that it takes three to five years To make something in my experience that feels like it's arrived So we were making the first year and a half version of it So there's not a pressure to be like this has to be the one mm. right? It's like what's this one going to be and then what would we do next? Right, so a real trust in the process and a trust in that the piece will You know opening up our own sense sensitivities to what the piece needs and cultivating that skill mm. to listen to it, so that we can hear when it's telling us what what it needs,
1: yeah, I mean, with the little experience that I have with making new work i I can say that at least for now, like i I agree, like your question and how, you, how do you make decisions if if there's no one way to to lead a process? how do you know what decision needs to be made and when like I think this idea of the piece being something outside of you is key for me in, in understanding how to make decisions and that the piece kind of exists on its own. It makes me think on this podcast. And if if y'all listen to it uh, on being, it was an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert and she talks about ideas, needing collaborators And, and ideas being these like living things that are you know waiting for collaborators and that if an idea comes to you you don't do anything about it then it will leave you and find someone else to collaborate with <laughs> so just this notion of whatever story that you're making in a process it, it, it the story is leading like you're not leading the way the story is leading the way all you can do is listen to the story and the limitations that you have and then translate that into a decision that can be followed by the other collaborators in the team, you know, and it's super abstract, but it makes, it made total sense to me in working with in love and that positions. It's like I, I was working with one actor who we all were, were working with different actors because of COVID. So we separated into different rooms and worked separately. And one of the actors uh, was really struggling with improvisation, for instance, and I took that as a limitation, like, okay, with this person, like sh- we shouldn't, we shouldn't work this way because it's it's just not what we have available. So how else, you know, like a limitation really like leading the way, like the, the, the piece is literally leading the way. You just have to like, listen to the limitation and then find something else and keep trying, keep trying until like, you feel like, oh yeah, we arrived, you know? So yeah, it feels like it's easier to make decisions when you're listening to the piece as opposed to trying to generate it. Yeah, and it, I mean, there's so much in that question that I feel like just because this this
2: piece, I feel like was so enormous in terms of our journey because it was like the two middle years of our four-year education. And we were also working on our culminating projects while doing this one. So like they are inseparable for me. But I think I think the question really speaks to to the collaboration that we were trying to investigate too in terms of of how we worked together and our decision to work together because as like Muddy and I are in very different places in our lives and and learning than than Molly is and had seen the the school's production of Still Life and so you know are in awe of this like master woman because she's incredible. (laughs) And and, I mean, a big part for me too is like I was in, I was assisting um, on like so many main stage projects that were all being directed by, by men. And so when we got into a class, Mm -hmm. not, a, a main stage rehearsal, which, you know, like not a, not a rehearsal room, but a class. And that started our process. Like what Molly's speaking to about process being product has stayed with me so enormously as someone who, who learned through this process that like, I absolutely adore making work and believe in this so, so much. And I'm actually maybe better at and more interested in taking devising work, whatever that means as a, as a mindset into more traditional processes that already come with a script so it's not my particular goal to keep like creating new work over and over again but this this idea that that the process and like if ever you have to get everyone in to listening to this larger thing in order to really affect people like I fully fully stand by um, that that is the only way to be making work and I mean yeah things happen but but that our process started in the classroom I think really allowed, Our exploratory process once we were even in a main stage rehearsal to still be so much of a laboratory and so much of the goal being the learning experience for all of these student actors and absolutely at least for for myself because the the decision making like we were doing this massive thing like there were nine rehearsal rooms happening every night in three different rooms with six stage managers and like 64 people making this huge thing that ultimately turned into like nine and a half hours of play altogether. But all of that was true. And yet like it was just, it just came down to working with the one actor for one hour. And I had never done that alone and like fully making the decisions and having to listen to this other person and listen to this piece that I didn't know what the other rooms looked like and how, how do I make a decision about this if I have no idea what's going on over there really kind of forced that listening into, into a really exciting place because I was watching even just my three actors develop such radically different aesthetics and styles and working and process. And so it felt like just such a, a masterclass in, in terms of that, like one couple of skills because we could trust Molly to be looking out for these larger process questions, and really we're taking her lead on most of that and watching her with with a keen eye while trying to balance this this new skill that we were really trying to hone in. So if, if yeah,
4: I think that's great, and I I think that's such a wonderful thing that education like that provides as a harbor and a space for people to be guided and also to explore and to without the pressure of not to say that there's not pressure I'm just saying that I always look back on my training as the most freedom that I had to without the you know I'm not getting paid for this I'm not I'm just learning and I'm in a space where and if you're loving what you're doing and you're growing in that thing and you've got good mentors what a great space to be and exist in as you build what you want to do or how you want to direct or whatever your craft is in the in the arts I think that's I mean, a lot of people are, have different opinions globally about whether a, education in that sense is, is worthwhile. But I think in, for, for some people to have that opportunity, to have that safe space to explore, to grow, to create and have those mentors is just irreplaceable. I really think it's an amazing opportunity. Yeah, just want to say that. I just think it's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. And like, I will
2: say to the to your point about like being, being women and young women, which is also for me a, a big reason like why to do this for a lot of reasons which we can get into in terms of the actor character relationship stuff too but just in terms of the three of us and I'm, i'll speak for myself because i don't know where buddy is on some of this but like if i had been actually responsible for the design portion of this project either structurally in our making or like actually communication with design like it would have been a disaster it is yes And so I'm like so the 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 stages of learning that, that were able to happen because of that safe space that you're talking about. So that I could really focus on mm-hmm. the acting stuff while we had been talking and talking and talking about how to do this and how to make theater with people and like we're improving all for the first time and this felt really, really new and scary and exciting. And we were able to be watching Molly do all of this stuff as a mentor mentor position was so I'm just immensely grateful for um because then then doing my thesis this past semester and then being in charge of all of those design decisions. I was like, Whoa, okay. I would not have been ready for like any of this to do this alone. If I hadn't had that like really lovely primer to figure out what my, my process of like how to listen and make decisions in ways that, that are useful and not useful to the actors and had a little space to, to really fail beautifully in play to, to go into a new process with, with a much stronger understanding of myself.
3: I kind of want to stop <laughs> for a second and ask you, one of you, whomever to explain us a little bit of what actually love in that position was or is, and why are we talking about nine hours worth of, uh, <laughs> play <laughs> and, uh, how the, the work was divided between all of you and what does it really entitle um, this production and what was special about it? Because I'm not sure if it's clear <laughs> to everyone.
0: In a back corner of the campus. And it was crafted in such a way that there were n- nine or eight at the end. Eight? Eight. Eight pods, I think, at the end. Yeah, there were eight different pods, and a pod was a small, like a 10 by 10 or 8 by 8 space that had its own visual design and one character inside of that space. And at that space, so these pods were basically around the um, perimeter of this lot, and the audience was sitting in the middle of the space, And each pod was hooked up to three audience members on a particular sound system so that they were listening through their phones and headphones to the text that was happening in that particular pod. So an audience would walk in, they would take a seat in the middle of this gravel lot, it would be at some distance from a particular pod, and they would plug into a particular channel on this app, and they would then hear the text from that character and so the piece which is which is like a massive deconstruction of trojan women was this ebb and flow between what was happening in the pods and then what we would call the choruses where the characters would all come out of the pods and start moving through the space around the audience and so the first what like 55 minutes of the piece, like the first large section of the piece was this ebb and flow between Focusing in on these pods and hearing that through the headphones and then everybody moving through the space and hearing sound outside the headphones through these sound system, this large sound system in, in the space. And the way that it was, that the way that this first large segment was structured is that the first monologue was quite long. Where we, I, uh, what was the first one? 13. 13 minutes. So the first monologue section, so that's with the headphones and watching this one pod in close proximity to you though you could turn and see any of them all the time but you would only hear the text from the one that you know you were plugged into and that was 13 minutes and then there'd be a chorus that was one minute and then you'd be back with your pod for eight minutes and another chorus that was one minute and then and this time structure would shift so that by the end the monologues were at one minute section, segments and the choruses were at eight minutes. So the choruses were getting longer and longer as the, as the time went on and the monologue sections were getting shorter and shorter. So there was this intersection of time s- structure based on the Fibonacci spiral. So the choruses were increasing on that spiral and the monologues were decreasing on that spiral. So that's the first big section. Someone wants to tag team from there or jump in anywhere around that. And well, the
1: second session of the show that was in terms of process, that was a very interesting one because we we started off thinking that the show would end one way and it ended in a different way, which really speaks to, you know, what happens in the making process, like decisions are, are made and then new decisions are made and things are changed. But yeah, originally we thought that the play would end with a scene between uh, Polixena and Cassandra. So characters based off of Polixena and Cassandra, two characters from Trojan women. And we spent time working on that scene. uh, And the idea was that the three of us, that would be the piece that we would all work on together. Because for the rest of the piece, really what we did was separate in in different rooms. So Akita uh, worked with three actors. I worked with three other actors in developing their monologues. Molly worked with one actor and Molly was also in charge of the choruses. And then the idea was that for that last scene between those two characters, we would all develop that together. And for, for a big portion of the semester, we did that, we tried and we we didn't we didn't get anywhere like we it wasn't wasn't working as we thought it would and then i think i mean i think molly you can speak more to that because the turn of the piece and of the process you took the lead in that with that turn which is also interesting to think about like in terms of directing like what what that means like moments of needing to take a turn and and as you yourself has said so many times like steer the ship in a different direction and take people with you, like, right. Like talk to people and not only welcome them and, and invite them to turn with you, but really like bring them with you because sometimes considering that people are not, they don't have the, they might not be having the same vision as you because as a director, you were aware of everything else. Not only, you know, sometimes your acting job or your design job, people might not understand why the turn needs to happen. And that was a good example of that because it was a big shift and it worked for the best. I would say they really made the piece in so many different ways. But yeah, instead of a scene, we ended on a monologue. So Polixena, the character of Polixena, had this beautiful monologue that lasted 30, 20 20 minutes,
0: 21, 20, yeah.
1: Yeah. And in that monologue, really, like that's when I would say that that's when the the pieces came together for an audience member who would walk in uh, into the 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 gravel lot and sit sit in the chair and listen to this monologue and watch these choruses. Only, only when all of the all all of the audience members were hearing the same thing, hearing the same monologue coming from Polixena, only then the different content threads of the piece came together as one and only then they they were able to fully realize what they had been witnessing and watching this whole time prior to the monologue so in terms of craft in terms of structure it was a necessary it was a necessary thing that really made the piece and then the piece ends with a musical <laughs>
0: hang on what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so in rehearsal there was this this day early on that we were like okay so what would happen if helen and agamemnon had like a musical like what would that be like at what was it like a rock concert i can't remember
2: mm-hmm
0: the exact question that came up, it was early on. And so the two actors and the incredible sound designer composer that was on the project, they were tasked with like, I mean, took, took the task, like we offered it and they were like, yes, let's go find out, you know, of like, what would it be if these two characters were like singing in a rock concert? And so they wrote a rock musical that ended the, ended the piece. And so after this 20-minute monologue, where it's not through the headphones, it's live, like, on top of this head, there was a large head in the space, on top, you know, she, she you know, this really powerful, uh, intimate monologue, then gives way to this rather outrageous musical. And that's how the piece ended, basically. The tiny moment at the end, post-musical, but like only about a minute long. It was a wild ride. <laughs> um,
2: and I'll just speak briefly, I suppose, to to kind of how Trojan Women fits into all of this, which is not really in any textual way. Uh, the biggest thing that, that we took was each actor we were working from the slavitt translation of seneca's trojan women and each actor kind of had had a conversation where they were able to voice which pe- which characters in that translation they resonated with and why so they all ended up working on one one character so that was the biggest thing that we took was was the characters from and the and the situations in which the characters were coming from whatever the actor resonated with to create what I would say is a descendant of that original character Um, and kind of using, using the idea of a voice from the past. So where, where else is Helen in the world right now? Um, And so they had kind of the entire span of history up until, I guess we, we said like 2019, because we started making it, or yeah, the beginning of 2020 and all of global history to choose where, where this person was in time and what they were going through. And we, we had this pillar of, of the bathroom. The bathroom became very important for me. And we, I think, yeah, important to note that we all have very different experiences of like where the hooks are in, in the story. But for me, the bathroom came from the recognition that as a society, we are, we're so ready to engage with war, and depictions of war and look at dead bodies and we won't really confront or look at what's happening in a bathroom. And yet a lot of the stuff that's happening in a bathroom tend to be the metaphorical wars that lots of people in our society are fighting. And so where, where do those two kind of come together? So we, yeah, so bathrooms, church women, <laughs> war poetry, there was a lot of stuff going on, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of how, how that feeded into it all.
0: Going back to your question, Anna, that the piece itself was about an hour and a half. But but if you took all of the different monologues and we, and we never, none of us got to see the whole piece actually before it opened because it was too many hours. We didn't have enough time to everyone to put all of them back to back because they were all happening simultaneously. But if you had put them back to back, it was quite a few hours of theater that we had made, but they were happening simultaneously.
4: And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools, from the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages, working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N-floors.com. That's really, really cool. It sounds really, really interesting. I think what was the challenges of taking your own parts and your own actors and breaking off and trying to divide and conquer that in that in terms of a how did you reconnect all those pieces collectively while you're doing such separate processes during the development?
3: I
0: felt that my role in this project was primarily like an orchestrator. Like I'm so enamored by orchestrators of any musical (laughs) listening to how, what the orchestrator does to, to take those threads of sound and make it full and work in such a complex way. So I was, you know, we were talking about how like, this is like a symphony. The piece is like a visual kinetic Sonic Symphony And so so my role, as they were saying, um, they were working on quite a few monologues. I ended up just working on one of them and then helping structure the choruses. But I was I had the task of like holding the big picture, and then they were working and zeroing in on the, the de- like actually writing these segments. And so it was like that, that ebb and flow was one, was one way we could describe how that worked. And I was also, as Acadia said, really spending a lot of time working with the designers because that was, that was also like the sound with the headphones and the different sound systems. And that was, you know, so that we were, we were tasked with different aspects of this huge mosaic That would be one way that I might respond to that. How about y'all? I mean, I definitely agree in terms of
2: the orchestration role because I also think, Molly, you were, in working on the choruses, listening to a lot of the threads that might have been coming up in our individual rehearsals. Like, a lot of writing the monologue was, okay, now we have this theme that's come up or this motif or this, we found this way into language, like the turning of the head away. We we like we need every pod to have some emblem to that, and so there was that, and there was that, vice versa. Um, like, oh wow, there's really this huge like piece of symbolism that's coming up, kind of for everybody. Like, what could we do with that? And then I think a lot of it too was the actors doing a really beautiful job at figuring out how how that ebb and flow of monologue and chorus was actually one continuous journey. And a lot I think was discovered especially through our tech process when everything was really kind of starting to come together for the first time. One of the actors that I was working with who was working on Andromache, uh, we had developed some text about a memory of hers of, of finding these pair of red heels in the window in the middle of World War II in Russia as a, as a sniper soldier who had been enlisted. And she put those heels on her partner who died in battlefield to kind of memorialize her and remember her as a woman who died, not a man, because they were treating the women soldiers as men. And so throughout the courses, we found an opportunity for her to kind of put all of these pairs of red shoes in different hidden spots throughout the gravel lot and in the toilets. And we had a, a bathroom talk going on and there was so much movement and hearing the actors talk about their relationship to the other actors for which for the most part, they were completely isolated from finding those connections and relationships through that course. And as well as for Isabel, who was playing Polixena, we found this whole thing, I think like maybe th- two or three days before the first show where she was actually going to come in to every character's pod for one second and they were going to have a moment. And that was before we see the monologue. So there was a lot of, a lot of connective tissue I think got developed once we sort of had enough, like so much of the process was, okay, we have to come up with 30 minute monologues for everybody. And okay, what are we doing for this hour of, of time in the middle for these choruses? And what's the musical? And everyone was working on such different pieces of it, that that's where the, the trust and the faith that Molly was speaking of earlier, I think really came in, especially for as like a young person who was just terrified the whole
3: time,
2: <laughs> that like that's really where that exercise came in handy, because we just had to believe that that some of it was going to be interesting enough and alive in its own way that we would learn something from. It.
0: And yeah, what you're saying makes me really think about you know just the the truth of the situation is that the three of yeah. us w- had a certain role in leading the process, but the point of the process was that every single person involved was making the piece. Yeah. So each of the actors was making their pods in collaboration with the person who was directing that, and the sound designer was making that sound you know with that they were crafting it the musical i i came to rehearse i came and sat in on rehearsals but they did it a hundred percent they did it like with no it wasn't that, that it, it was a project in mid-covid to give people space to make to create and so it was, We, the three of us may have started it and worked on it for, you know, many months before anyone else came on. But once people came on, it was made by
1: 64 people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very important piece of the puzzle. And I mean, I think the pieces together as we went through uh, to connect the story to something quote, unquote, like cohesive or, or that would make, some sense to the audience, some sense, not a lot of sense. But that makes me think of how aware we were of that question even before we started rehearsals with the actors. Like how aware we were of like, okay, we're going to start making this piece and in the process of making it, we're going to have to be conscious of connecting the dots. And I think what's something that we did to help us with that was to present the actors with really the same prompt but different versions of the same prompt in working on their monologues so they all had a character of trojan women different characters but a character from that play and we were all building these monologues that we were monologues that we understood as depositions so the characters were, were doing it at that position. And the prompt, in a way, was to find in this character's life who Polixena was to them. So the character of Polixena in Trojan Women, who that character, that young female character who was sacrificed in the play Trojan Women, who, who was that for them in their lives? and the bathroom and how does the bathroom fit fit into into your character's story so all of those things were common to to the actors and those th- they were like the seeds that then bloomed into things that were connected from the beginning and then we found new connections that we never thought of which really, and then, and then, and then new things, exciting things that were seemingly not connected at all. But all you have to do is then build the thread between the two things that feel like they are not connected at all, but you can really connect anything like two different, you know, points you can all of meaning. You can always make a connection if you, if you listen hard enough to that. And that's what it happened at the end. Like the bathroom was just like a revelation, like it was surprised us how that the, it was a part of the piece. It was there from the beginning, but only towards the end we realized why.
0: Yeah, that was totally wild. Like that's the thing where it's like the piece made itself. Like when you say that idea, that ideas come and look for collaborators, it's almost like that idea of connected to Isabel who mm. worked and created the role of Polixena you know, this bathrooms was like central key. But that part of the story didn't even emerge until the last couple of weeks of a 18-month process. So it was like,
1: whoa, my god, It was, yeah, incredible. I think we have to explain why. (laughs) So basically the character of Flixner who had the big monologue at the end, we learned that, that the character... That really wasn't polyxena <laughs> we, right? Like it was a character that was looking for polyxena, and it was a character who was abandoned as a baby in a public bathroom. That was the background of the character, and then spent her whole life looking for polyxena, a character so basically a character who was obsessed obsessed with Greek mythology and grew up and um, obsessed with Greek mythology and learned English uh, through uh, audiobooks of Greek mythology and noticed that this character of Philixina had no lines in this play, Trojan Women, and was curious about where this character was in her world around her in her everyday life and we learn all of that through that through her monolog and the monolog is a continuation of her search for polyxena. and she's asking the audience if they've seen polyxena. and it's yeah it's just a continuation of that search and through that i guess we then understand you know as an audience member then you would understand why you spent like 30 minutes prior to that moment watching this character in a bathroom or in some somewhere that resembled a bathroom or giving a monologue that that spoke to a bathroom or, you know, had something to do with a bathroom. And those, yeah, those connect, those threads of content were, I guess, connected through this character's search for polyxena, who then really was the person who abandoned her. Like this, this person who she realized that she came from Polixena and she was giving Polixena's back to the world. She was like regenerating polyxenas. She was, you know, the, she abandoned someone, but she was probably also abandoned. And then it was in the character's hands to then make a choice on how she would, she would perceive her her own polixina she would forgive her or she would resent her and that was all of those questions were threaded in the monologue yeah that was a bad explanation but
3: (laughs) 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 and how do you see this process had an impact I think Acadia you mentioned a bit of it and um How has this affected your work your after this production? What's the impact in your own career and individual projects?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I I spoke a little bit to it, but it's been immense. And it's been, I think for me, really deeply like it was the practice and the exercise of the searching and and the faith in the like the net below us that that what we were all making together was so much stronger than any individual piece that has like radicalized my whole world because i i'm like so excited for the teams and the projects that are have happened since and will continue to happen because like for me in believing that process is a is reflected in the product and that devising is, can be equally a mindset as it can be a descriptive process. Like you don't have to be making a play from scratch to be devising in a room with people, like making any play, even if it has a script, like that's, that's definitely the philosophy that I have adopted from this process. And, and as well, I mean, cause we were working with our, our classmates and a large reason, a large poll for me to do to work on this and to do this together was to give a lot of the female-identifying and non-binary and trans students in our class like space to create a character that they would not necessarily ever get to play on the stages at our school if they were handed a script and a character, and to investigate what it was to be working together. Like there was so much; it was super exciting. But to be able to to see now almost a year after we've started rehearsals with those nine students to watch how their Connection to their identity as artists have evolved because they were able to create something, and now are like can take that character and actually track a through line of all of the work that they're pulled to, and all of the work that they want to make based in this in this character that they created. And it's so exciting to I'm I'm working right now on kind of a, a play that I'm writing with two of the uh, actors who were in. Love and Depositions, one working on Hecuba and one on Andromache. And we've just invited a new collaborator who is not a part of Love and Depositions into that team. And it's been so fascinating because I I really taken just this past week for me to understand the enormity of the experience that we all had together. Because we can talk about just the practice that we did. Oh, that was from the compost. Oh, who was your polixena? Like all of these questions that come up in rehearsal and this third party new new person who's coming in, is like, what is going on? Because we've created, and it, it's come up in a couple of processes since for me, my mom told me this actually, that psychologically, if you create a language that only like a certain group of people that you're working with is familiar with, that is psychologically us making a family is like having our own kind of language to be able to process something with. And the gift that that has been for what it is to make and the faith, because I've been working on this all semester and we've had a really tough couple of months of like, it was just the two of us. We didn't know what was going on. And now we've tapped into the community of it again. And that compost has been refueled and everything has been re-inspired and relit. And the connections that are coming back, to different pieces that we've made because Love de- love and Depositions existed as well as the piece itself that was created in the different pieces and being able to use full sections of text from the two different pods that they were working on to create a completely new story in an entirely different world has just been miraculous. So I, I, it's been such an incredible gift in terms of the practice of listening and and all of the different ways that collaboration can look like and really truly the trust in in process and in people to show up for something greater than themselves.
0: This year, both after Love and Depositions and also um, happened with the first version of Still Life with Rocket this year, that which was in D.C. in 2017, but the fact that a piece can be like a dandelion, where it then leads to people who were part of that creative process part of the creative team going on to make new work that was seeded in that project. And so it really raises, a, for me, a, a beautiful window into a new way of thinking about authorship and ownership and who has rights to what work. And there's a lot of good questions that come up around that with devised work or work that is made in collaboration and so to see it as like oh right it's like a dandelion it's that we all we all have made things inside this project and that that then spawns new pieces seeded in those in those creative endeavors. I can't think of anything right now personally that feels more meaningful or more beautiful about making together. That it 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 just expands this idea of authorship in such a meaningful way to me that makes it worth doing this because the pieces are so transient and the pieces come and go but the fact that these seeds then grow is is just yeah it's the, the, this it's, it's beautiful
4: it is beautiful and I also think that I totally resonate Arcadia with that idea of the the family and even just the terminology and nomenclature you might use as a group because I think that has happened and stemmed up in, you know, Anna and I have worked in the circus environment and that has a particular language. And even when you work cross-culturally, it doesn't even have to be a language. It can be a a physical, for example, in the aquatic show we did was like a tap on the head or there's all of these unknown, they're actually aquatic terms, but they became a language that we used to communicate through Language barriers and 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 through communication between technicians and performers. Uh, and it's such a wonderful, and it's such a always when we brought people into the show, it was always so overwhelming for them, not just to learn the show or to the, but to learn the context of all of these words that we used, all of these actions that we used around backstage to communicate in. While motorbikes were riding by, or underwater, or together, that I understand what you're doing and you understand what I'm doing, and I'm protecting you because you need to see that green light, or you can't dive in that water, or you're going to die because there's not a lift, there's a lift under there. And and so, all these things are so high stakes that it was always like learning the role, but then learning the family of everything that comes behind that. And it's, it was a fascinating thing. And it's true, like also what you say, Molly, you take all of those foundational things that you build. And when you go into new environments or you go into new things, it's just this massive toolkit that you spread and you share and you educate and you make better shows or more interesting explorations as you when when you're when you've been in those kind of challenging environments where you're working together as a team. I think that's the beauty of that collaboration. And the irony of all of that is that you know some people get the ownership of the design of the lighting or the design of this and. They get revenue from that. But the reality is our process is a collaborative one. Like I don't know who ends up getting all the money for this or that or when the contract's all good for them. But the reality is a show at its core, everybody participates to, from the actor on stage to the person flying the curtain to the director to the lighting person. And what a beautiful process that is. So I think as you explore your different shows and, and doing that, what what this one particularly says, it sounds it sounds like it was so... Exploratory, but also gave you different challenges that you can now take into that future work. So I think that's super cool. So on that, Anna, should we mm-hmm. ask them how do we learn more about you? Where do we find you? If people want to know what you're doing, can we share that with our listeners?
2: Uh, I have a website. It's my full name. dot com, And there's please, yeah, contact contact me. But there's some really incredible pictures that Marina took of Love and Depositions. <laughs> yes,
1: <I think laughs> she did. <laughs> yeah my my website is also myfullname.com. dot oh that makes it easy
4: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and Molly and I
0: hope to be moving to a yurt somewhere in the woods um,
4: <laughs> so no one can find you what <laughs>
0: <right>? <laughs> so find them and uh and no and we'll um, bring you to the woods <laughs>
3: <Molly>. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing we're now producing in the woods, sounds like. <laughs> so,
0: yes, that's a great question. I do not have a website. Yes, find me in the woods.
3: <laughs> well, thank you very much. This this was great. I love the conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you both for having us. It's
4: been wonderful. Yes, thank you. Yeah, very exciting to meet you guys. I wish you all the best for your upcoming works. It sounds like you've got a good future ahead of you.
3: (laughs) Theatre at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year.